good morning. Oh, good. Lively bunch today. That's wonderful. Uh, what an honor and a privilege to be here this morning to bring you a message from the Word of God. My name is Leora, as was mentioned, and I am the director of children's ministry here, which may, you might hear a little bit of a flavor of that in the sermon today, might go a little bit that direction. Um, today, we, as Pastor Steve said, we are in our last uh, sermon on the Proverbs series. We've gone through it all summer long, and uh, this will be our last one uh, for the time being. Of course, there are hundreds of other Proverbs we could talk about, but we are looking forward to next week starting our new sermon series into Let's Go, looking at what's ahead. What does God have for us? Where are we going next? Because we're ready. We're ready to take those next steps and follow Jesus, and we hope that you'll join us. I'm just going to pray before I start. God, thank you for the opportunity to share what you've put on my heart. God, I pray that you would use these words to encourage, to correct, to, to wrap your arms around. God, that your spirit would move through uh, the words that you have put in my heart to share today. I pray these things in your name. So the topic today is humility. What is humility? And why does having humility or being humble matter in our lives today? Proverbs 22, 4 says this. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. If I were to poll the people listening today, I think that all of us, in one way or another, are probably in some kind of pursuit of one of those things. Riches, or honor, or life. You're likely using your energy and your time so that one of those things is blossoming in your life. Some want riches, and so they pursue those riches at every turn looking for that job promotion or where to invest next, and they just kind of use their whole time and energy chasing after riches. Or maybe it's that you want people's respect. You want people to honor you or think that you're important or that you have a high position in something. Or maybe it's life. Maybe you want more of it. Maybe you want to try to squeeze every experience out of your life. Or maybe you're trying to make your life look a certain way. It's possible that if you're like me, that you look at these things, riches and honor in life, and you think, oh, to be a good Christian, I shouldn't, I shouldn't want, I shouldn't have those things in my life. In fact, I should probably take a vow of poverty. I should probably turn into a doormat and not care what anybody thinks about me, and I probably shouldn't care about what my life looks like. Sometimes we internalize things like that. But what the Bible actually tells us about those things is that they're actually gifts to you to steward. But the pursuit of them is where we'll come up feeling empty and lost. And so what I'd like to do today, what I'd like to propose, is that we shift our attention from pursuing those riches and honor and life to a pursuit of humility and fear of the Lord, because it's there that we will find that true reward. So let's talk a little bit more about humility and fear of the Lord. Humility and fear of the Lord in this this verse here is an 
op opposition to each other, that the one produces the other, kind of like a chicken and an egg situation. Which one comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first in humility and fear of the Lord? Well, what this verse is telling us is that humility and fear of the Lord are in tandem. They're neatly intertwined in the way that one doesn't equal the other without the other. They need each other to actually be true. So let's start by talking about fear of the Lord. The word fear is an interesting one, isn't it? It's a word that's often associated with negative feelings. It's a word that we might hear and we think fear of the Lord. Is this really true? Is that, should I be afraid of the Lord? Should I be afraid of God? Isn't there other characteristics? Like, isn't God kind? Isn't he loving? Isn't he good? Why should I fear him? But the phrase fear of the Lord isn't about that. The fear of the Lord is about seeing God for who he is, truly and fully all the facets of who God is, all of his character, and then standing in awe of him. Is God holy? Yes, he is. Is God loving? Yes, he is. Is God just? Yes, he is. Is he jealous? Yes, he is. Is he kind? Yes, he is. To have fear of the Lord means that you, as best as we can in our human minds and our human hearts, understand him in his greatness, and we stand in awe and reverence of him. That's fear of the Lord. So that's a brief look at fear of the Lord. There's, of course, always more that we can unpack, but I'd really like to talk a lot about humility today. What is humility? A long time ago, the Son of God, whose name is Jesus, came to earth as a human being. He came to earth as a baby. He came and his first bed was a manger. He came and his parents were obscure. Nobody knew who he was. He came and he lived in a small town, living a small life, until it was time for him to do the work that God had called him to do. That reason why he had come, the reason why Jesus came to earth, it was now time to do that work. And what was that work? That work was going around day after day and telling people with his words and showing them with their actions what the kingdom of God is like. He would go around and he would heal the sick. He would go around and teach about God and his character. He would go around and teach in a way that even the undereducated of the day could understand what he was talking about. He had dinner with tax collectors. He had dinner with prostitutes and the religious elite. All of them. Nobody was left out. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And he also gathered around him 12 disciples who were from all kinds of walks of life. And they taught him the way, and he taught them the way of life through, again, his words and his example. And after 33 years on earth, it was time for him to complete the work that he came to do. To be arrested. To be beaten. To die on the cross for our sins. And for God to raise him back to life again. 
But before that could happen, he needed to do a couple more things with the disciples. And one of them was the Passover meal. And so he tells two of his disciples to go ahead of him. And he says, go on ahead and prepare the Passover meal. It's at a stranger's house. Don't worry, he knows you're coming. Just go and, and prepare in the upper room. Just get it all ready. So off the disciples go and they get ready. They start preparing all these beautiful, amazing things that happened in the Passover meal. And eventually the whole gang shows up. I don't know how many there were. There were at least 13 of them. There may have been more. But they show up and they're ready to eat this meal. And they're seated around this beautiful spread of food. And they're all kind of sitting next to each other. And they're lounging on these beautiful, I don't know what it was, maybe pillows or different things. But all I know is that their feet were not neatly tucked underneath a table. And that poses a problem if you're from the Middle East and you're wearing sandals. The problem is, is that you have very dirty feet and that they're very stinky. And so usually what would happen when people would come into a room is that there would be a servant assigned to especially do this job, to wash your feet. And as they're seated around the table, the Bible doesn't tell us how long, but they were seated around the table for a little while and they still had those stinky feet right next to each other and about to eat the meal. And Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer robe, and he wraps around him a towel. And he goes to each disciple. Takes a water basin. Puts their foot in. Washes one foot. Takes it out, dries it off. Puts the other foot in, washes it, dries it off. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that there's like real life timeline happening here. If I were to take 12 of you and line you up and wash all of your feet, I think I would fill the entire sermon time that I have allotted to just wash your feet. Like, this was not a short little, like, dip your toes, K next, dip your toes, K next. It was like a wash your feet kind of situation. They had to take time and notice, like, what is this? What is happening? It is weird. Jesus was their rabbi. This job is not meant for him. This job is meant for the lowest, the person that's a servant in the room, not Jesus. And they're all feeling awfully uncomfortable about it. But there's one person who's one of my favorite characters because he's usually the person that jumps up and is like, I'm going to say what I'm thinking. And he gets up and he's like, okay, you are not. Are you going to wash my feet too, says Peter? Like my feet? Me? You're gonna, Jesus, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you might not understand now why this is important. But you will later. And Jesus, Peter says, he's super uncomfortable. He is not okay with Jesus washing his feet. And he's definitely not afraid to tell him. He says, you will never wash my feet, says Peter. Jesus looks at Peter and says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that's the only thing that Peter wanted. He wanted to have a part with Jesus. He wanted to be important to Jesus. He wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing. And so, of course, Peter swings all the way the other way, and he's like, all right, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash all of me. Because I want to be a part of what you're doing, Jesus. And Jesus is like, it's not really the point. In John 13, it says, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And he says something else that we'll talk about in a minute. 
says, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And we're going to talk about that. So after everyone's feet are clean, Jesus lowers himself down. Well, he puts his, takes a towel off, puts his robes on, and lowers himself back down to the table. And as he lowers himself down, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet as you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you. Should I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus was setting the bar on how to treat one another. He's showing them yet again what the kingdom of God is like. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, this is what your behavior looks like. This is how we treat one another in God's kingdom. We wash one another's feet. Nobody is better than the next. The way to the kingdom of God is humility. But here's where I run into trouble. I run into trouble because when I read this passage and I think, okay, one more thing. I can fix one more thing that is wrong with me. I will now take on humility and do it better. Anyone else? I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to, you go first. No, it's okay. You go. And I try to put on this behavior of humility. It's like I take a rock and I put it in my backpack and I'm like, okay, eh, one more thing. To be a good Christ follower. And it's not that these actions aren't important. Please don't hear that. We need these actions. Jesus was showing an example of what our behavior should look like. But the key to this is not in that passage. The key to this is actually earlier on before he even took off his outer robes and put on the towel. It's his heart posture. What is going on in his heart? John 13, 3, this is what it says. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what the Father had put, that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Jesus knew what was true about him through the lens of what God said was true about him. And that is what humility is. Humility is having an accurate self-assessment from what God says is true about me. Jesus had that. He had an accurate self-assessment from God and what he said was true about him. He knew, therefore, he didn't have to do any posturing and saying, I'm better than you. I'm your rabbi. You should wash my feet. He knew. He knew how God viewed him. He knew what he was to do. This is not an easy lens to internalize at all. That's Jesus I'm talking about. I know this because of my personal experience. 
And I also know this because if we continue on in the story, we're going to see that the disciples also had a hard time internalizing this. Even though they had just witnessed Jesus giving humility minutes before, this is what they do. So the Passover meal is a beautiful meal. It is a gift that God gave the people as a feast, as a festival to remember that God saved them. He gave them that, that beautiful meal as a remembrance so that they would remember and celebrate that God saved them when they were in Egypt, that he provided a salvation way out and he was going to provide one in the future. It was about what God had done and what God will do. And all the different parts of the story of the Passover meal, each part that they practiced and that they went over told them a little bit something else about God, about his promises, about what he has done and what he will do. Every part was important to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness and his promises. And as Jesus works his way through this meal with the disciples, Jesus gives two meaningful, two elements, new meaning. We're going we're gonna to celebrate this later together as well. This is what Jesus did. He held up the bread and he told them that this is a symbol and a reminder of my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he, he showed it to them and he said, this is a symbol and a reminder of the blood I will shed for you. Now, remember that Jesus had not died yet. The disciples didn't understand. Even though Jesus had plainly told them, they kind of were like, I think that might be an imagery thing, right, Jesus? Like, you're not talking about actual death. Like, I think they had this belief that God was going to do, like, this military coup or political coup, and they were going to do a big revolution in Israel, and they were to overthrow Rome, and they were going to become this great nation, and all the disciples were going to get to be, like, powerful and honored, and they were just going to have this great life. They were in it for the riches, the honor, and the life. So as this meal is happening... The disciples go from who's the greatest to who's the worst. When Jesus finished sharing the symbols of the wine and the bread, God's new way of salvation, he finished that by saying this. The hand of him is going to betray me, is with me on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. Somebody in this room, somebody, somebody at this table is going gonna, is gonna to betray Jesus. Is it you? Is it you? Is it? And the disciples start arguing among themselves which one could be this way. Which one of you is the worst? Who's the worst? Huh? Who's going to betray Jesus? How could you do that? And when they couldn't quite figure out who was going to betray Jesus, who was the worst, they then decided to hop on the other side and start talking about who was the greatest. That's the conversation. This was all over one meal. Jesus starts out by washing their feet, telling them to love one another, serve one another. He tells them about his death and his resurrection. He tells them that his body will be broken and his blood poured out for them. 
And the disciples are talking about who among them is the worst and who is the greatest. They didn't get it either. And I love these stories about the disciples. They make my heart so happy because they're relatable. I have a bigger picture than them, of course. I mean, I can see the beginning, middle of end and what comes right after this meal, but they don't have that. Just like you don't have what's coming next in your story. They didn't have that. Sometimes it's easy for me to look at the disciples and go, what's wrong with them? Can't they see? Don't they know? But then I look at my own life. Do I do that? Yeah, I do. It wasn't long after this conversation that Jesus tells the disciples that he'd like to go to the garden, his favorite place to go meet with God. And he'd like to pray. And they joined him. And it was in that garden that Jesus was arrested. And each one of those disciples had to look at what was actually going on in their hearts. All of a sudden, the disciples had to face a lot of hard truths about how they saw themselves. Just like me, they had a lot to learn about what it means to have accurate self-assessment from what God says is true about them. I'm thankful for a patient and kind God. So if humility is an accurate self-assessment from what God says is true about me, then where can I go to find this? Where can I go to find what is true about me? Well, the first thing you need to know, there's two things. The first thing that you know, need to know is based completely and only on the fact that you were created by God. You are loved. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And every time in the Bible where God's love is mentioned for you, it doesn't have a caveat. It doesn't have a because, not like you think. For example, one of the most famous verses that you might know well is John 3.16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. There's nothing in there that says something like this, For God so loved the world because of how good they were that he gave his only begotten son. There's nothing in there that says, for God so loved the world because they loved him first, that he gave his one and only son. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world because they loved him back. God's love for you is. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 says this. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. His love is. Based completely on the fact that he made you, he loves you. 
you are completely and wholly loved by God. Not for what you can do, not for your moral standing, not for your marital status, not for what you contribute to society, but because God made you, he loves you with an unending, unrelenting love. That's the first thing we need to know about having a self accurate self-assessment from what God says is true about me. The second thing is found in Romans. It's a truth that helps us build also this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Every single one of us. Romans 3.10-12 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is not one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. The Bible is clear. And also history, our personal histories and world history, is very clear that sin is a very real thing that interrupts and breaks especially relationships. The first thing that sin broke was the relationship between God and humanity. And it continues to break down in every single part of our lives today. Evil is everywhere in the world, even in our own hearts. And when sin entered the world, it began and continues on a path of decay and destruction. It's trying to destroy all things. And you see, humility is when I hold those two truths together. When we hold that I am deeply and completely and wholly loved because God created me. And I am a broken, decaying person because of sin. But human nature has this tendency to elevate one side in the other or the other. Either I am the best, or I'm a worm, I'm the worst. And this will either result in pride or self-deprecation. And neither of those are a biblical view of self. And we can see this being played out in that short story of the disciples around that Passover meal. They flip-flop between those two things in seconds. Who's the worst? Okay, who's the best? And we do that in our own lives. But Jesus, Jesus gives us a third way. You aren't the worst. You aren't the best. You are you. You are fully loved. You are here on purpose for a purpose. And Jesus came to die for your sins because yes, you are, in fact, I am, in fact, a sinner. You are a broken and decaying person that needs the saving grace of a kind and loving and holy God. And when a person is secure in knowing that they are fully loved by God, that they acknowledge their debts for the sin that they have, aren't theirs and they're going to let Jesus pay for those. And when you hold these two truths in balance, 
Christ, there we'll find humility. How does God view me? What does he see when he looks at me? And when I live from that place, that's where our lives will be full. Full of riches and honor and life. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I've been hanging on to that verse for dear life. It's a verse that became very important to me several years ago as I was going through burnout. My burnout was from a combination of trying to find my worth and my value and my meaning in the work that I was doing while in tandem trying to make my life look a certain way and I couldn't do it. And when I couldn't do it, my life was filled with grief. I wasn't living the life that I thought I would. I was in pursuit of a particular looking life. And when I pursued it and it wasn't happening and it was roadblock after roadblock, it just and crushing. During that season, I couldn't answer the question if God was good. Was he kind? All I could see was prayers unanswered. I want that life, God. Why was God being silent? Wasn't I doing all the right things? Wasn't I being good enough? I mean, I was even working at a church with children. Wasn't God answering my prayers? I spiraled into a really, really dark place. But it was in that dark place that God began to unravel some beliefs that I had about him and beliefs that I had about me that weren't true. And I began a slow journey towards understanding that God is a big and whole and incredible character being, sorry, in character, an incredible being, not just the few characteristics that I like to pick and choose from. And the harder part for me is that I'm ever so slowly growing in understanding of how God sees me, what he sees in my life, how he values me, on the sole fact that he created me. He loves me with an unending, an unfailing love. And I'm also beginning to understand that my broken and deferred dreams breaks God's heart too. He is capable of fixing the dreams that I had for my life. And the dream that I had for my life, I was right on track. Graduated high school. I went to Bible school number one. It was great. Went to Bible school number two. Finally found the man of my dreams. Okay, that was good. We got married. I was 21. I was on track. Life I wanted. All I needed was a house full of children, and I'd be set. Not that hard, right? Happens for everyone else. At least feels like it. 
But then after 10 years of marriage, and still no children, seeking answers and help, not having children, I deferred dreams. And what I'm beginning to understand about the character of God is that my broken dreams break God's heart too. Is he capable of fixing or giving me my heart's desire? Absolutely he is. He can do that. And you know what? I talk to him about that a lot. About my disappointments, about my hurt and my pain. And what I've learned to understand is that God does not abandon me in my pain. He holds me and lets me cry. He reminds me that this, the pain that I feel, the pain that you feel, this is why Jesus came. Because he doesn't want us to live in that pain forever. He wants something different for us. This pain won't last forever. The pursuit of this life nearly crushed me. And through my pain and my burnout and depression, God walked with me forward towards what will truly give me life. And what will give me life is having an accurate self-assessment from what God says is true about me. And having a oh, reverent, whole picture view of God. Proverbs 22, 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Pursuing riches and honor and life will crush us. And so will if we just try to pick on the behavior, if we just try to pick up the behavior of humility. That will also crush us. But when we understand at a deep heart level what God says is true about you and then live from that place, it's then we can begin to truly live. And we can reap those rewards. But I don't know that we really notice, not the same. We'll reap those rewards of riches and honor and life. And that's my hope for all of us today. Is that we'll grow in understanding God's view of you. And that you'll grow to understand more about who God is. And what he's like. And how much he loves you. I'm just going to close in prayer. God, I thank you for your deep, unending love. I thank you that you are with us, that you care about us you care about each person listening here today. That you have a deep, unending love for each and every single one of them. God, I just pray that they would know that more, even just a little bit more today. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so we don't have to live in our pain. Thank you for paying the debt for our sins. You're good. Thank you for your word that lifts us up and encourages us.
pray these things in your name. Amen.